Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I'm Olivia Allen Price, and you're listening to Bay Curious, the podcast. But today we're talking about another project we recently put out into the world, a book called Bay Curious, Exploring the Hidden True Stories of the San Francisco Bay Area. I spoke with Alexis Madrigal on KQED Forum about how Bay Curious got its start, what's in the new book, and perhaps most fun of all, we played trivia with call-in guests on the show. So keep listening and you too can play along. We had so much fun taping this segment that we really wanted to share it with you. So we cut it down a bit and that's what you'll hear today. If you haven't had a chance to pick up the Bay Curious book, check with your local bookstore or library. It's being carried all over the place. You can also order copies through a variety of online retailers. Green Apple Books will ship you signed copies by yours truly if that's your jam. Lastly, if you read the book and enjoyed it, please consider giving us a rating or review on Amazon or Goodreads, or just talk us up to your friends. Word of mouth is so important for the success of the book and our podcast, so we thank you for helping out on that front. Okay, a quick message, and then I'll pass things off to Alexis Madrigal. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Did you know that Rocky Road ice cream originated in Oakland? Or that Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera were once married in San Francisco City Hall? Maybe you've wondered about Sutro Tower or Redwoods or the architecture of Chinatown. Well, today we're joined by Olivia Allen Price, host of KQED's Bay Curious podcast, to celebrate the publication of a book anthologizing the show's reporting, forgotten histories, legendary locals, and the many quirks and oddities that make the Bay Area what it is. We'll talk about the podcast, the book, and we're going to try a little something special in the Bay Curious tradition. 
a little game of trivia. That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've got a KQED crossover in store for you this morning. One of my absolute favorite media artifacts of any kind is our podcast, Bay Curious, which takes the Bay Area's culture and history and natural setting as a kind of wonderland to explore with curiosity and with verve. Olivia Allen Price hosts the show with such energy and intelligence, investigating questions asked by local residents about things both profound and peculiar that make the Bay Area unique. And she joins us here in the studio to celebrate the publication of the Bay Curious book, full title, Bay Curious, Exploring the Hidden True Stories of the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome. Hey, Alexis. Yeah, thanks for having me. So how'd you get started making Bay Curious? I came to KQED as a engagement producer. And at the time, a lot of what we were focused on is how can we get conversations going with our audience? A back and forth was kind of the goal. We really wanted our our audience to be a part of our journalism. But a lot of what I was doing at the time was uh, what really kind of still felt like broadcasting. It was putting things up on social media. And if you've spent much time on, on Facebook or Twitter or other social media platforms, you know that's not always a great place to have conversation and to get conversations going and have them mm-hmm. be quality conversations. So I was feeling like I was kind of missing the mark on this engagement part of of my job. At the same time, I was looking at this project out in uh, Chicago at Mm -hmm. WBEZ, and they had a pretty simple, you know, formula. They were inviting their audience to ask a question, and then they would answer that question in, you know, kind of a fun and delightful way in this regular program. And I was super inspired by that and was like, oh, darn, I wish I had thought of that. They were having just a lot of success and, and writing some really fascinating mm. stories. Jen Brandell, the woman who who came up with that project, came out to KQED and actually said, hey, I am trying to get more newsrooms to try this formula. Would you guys give it a go? And we said, mm. yes, we would We would love to do that. So that's kind of how we got started. Um, and the kind of one thing led to another. And, and now we're a podcast seven years in the making. <laughs> So for those who don't know about Big Curious already, tell us about how the show actually works kind of on like an episode-to-episode basis. Yeah, so we're a question and answer format show. So people can log on to baycurious.org and there is a big box at the top that invites you to ask a question about the Bay Area's people or culture or food. And what we do is as those questions come in, we're kind of screening them all the time. And the ones that seem super interesting, we'll go ahead and assign a reporter to. And then some that also seem interesting, we'll put into a voting round where the public is invited to help us decide what we should cover Uh, That voting round is also at baycurious.org. And so what we do is, yeah, we take those those questions, we answer them as much as possible. We try to bring the person who asked the question along for the ride. So we're really trying to have the public be a part of our journalism at every step of the way, from the assigning of the story to the the pitching of the story and ultimately the reporting of, of the story. So cool. And one of the things you guys have done in live events in particular is you've done these trivia nights here uh, at the station. So we wanted to sort of take a page from this book and do one of these trivia nights. So for you adventurous listeners out there who think you know the Bay Area very well, this is your chance to call in. You can win a copy of the book if you can correctly answer just three trivia questions. (laughs) 
So tell us a little bit more about how you go about investigating each of these questions. Is it just like, you know, st- standard journalism or what do you think? Yeah, I don't think it varies too much from standard journalism. Um, you know, how we report each question varies a lot based off the question. We definitely think of ourselves as an explainer show, uh, first and foremost. But a lot of our stories, to really get into, you know, the full breadth of the story, we end up looking back to history, right? Because history is so much of the context that that anything is is set in. So we've had a lot of, you know, partnerships with local historical societies. They're an amazing resource. There's one for, it feels like practically every city and town in the Bay Area. Um, and they're always super helpful, connecting us with primary source documents and, and photos. If you don't know, you know, your local history room or history society, definitely you should, you should check it out. We also do a lot of stories about science, science topics, and just the general expertise among faculty at all the many colleges and universities here is such a resource and just such a tr- tremendous gift that we have here in the Bay Area that I think it's hard to replicate in most other cities. I mean, even given all that, uh, are there questions that listeners have called in or you know written in and been like, we really want to know this, that you just hit a dead end? It burns me to say yes. Uh, so actually, our very first story out of the gate, you know, we were very excited to, to be launching Bay Curious. We're answering our first audience question. We're all gung-ho. And the question we chose was about a car wreck that is on a hiking trail up on Mount Tamalpais in Marin. And if you've been if you've been hiking on this trail, I think it was called the Coastal Trail. I think it's been renamed a different trail name now. But you're hiking along this trail, beautiful big views of the Pacific Ocean, and you come across this old car wreck that looks like it's from the 1930s, 1940s, and you actually have to divert around the wreck to continue on the trail. So it's a very noticeable car wreck. We took this question on thinking like, oh, there's police records. We can look up the VIN number. This should be a slam dunk to find out what happened with this car. Well, we learned a lot of things like cars of that age don't have VIN numbers. Uh, You know, there weren't police records that we could find about what may have happened to this car. Most likely it was a junker car that somebody kind of, you know, put a brick on on the uh, gas pedal and sent over the edge of the cliff and kind of let tumble down the ravine there. But we were never able to find out for sure. So it felt like right out of the gate we were promising people we would answer their questions and we kind of missed. And that really taught me before we take a question on now, just like make sure we can probably find an answer. I have to say, figuring out you could identify one random car from any time in history seems like that's not actually a slam dunk first one. That seems pretty impossible, actually. Um, so tell me about what's actually in the book. Like, you know, you've been making this entire media entity. When did it up kind of between the covers? The book is a collection of 49 short stories, and a lot of them are based off things that we've covered on the podcast. It's kind of a best of the podcast, but we also have a bunch of new stories that we created just for the book. There's also a dozen or so sidebars, and the stories kind of cover a range of things that you know have to do with Bay Area people, culture, places, food, nature. You know, It really is sort of a, a grab bag of fascinating things that we think you should know about this region that you that you live in. All right. I think we're going to take our first trivia call. Jefferson in Sausalito, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alexis. Um, Jefferson, are you ready? Ready. Listo. (laughs) All right. Let's do it. Here you go, Olivia. All right. Jefferson, what chocolate company started up in San Francisco in 1852 and is now the longest continuously operated chocolate maker in the country? 
Ghirardelli, whose aroma filled my senses when I walked to grammar school. <laughs> that is correct. Well done. Put one, one point on the board. All right, question two. Name the internationally acclaimed poet who both worked as a Muni streetcar conductor and recited their work at a presidential inauguration. Wow. E.E. Cummings on Little Cat Feet. Ooh, not quite. Alexis, do you want to give the answer? (laughs) Yeah, I will. Maya Angelou. Amazing, amazing stories about her being a Muni streetcar conductor and the ILWU providing, like, the muscle to make sure that, you know, she wasn't mad. It's There's great stories about that. All right. We'll move into question number three. What is the official color of the Golden Gate Bridge? I told you these were tough. They're tough. Um, let's see. 1936 rust <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. That would be international orange. Uh, Jefferson, thank you for playing. Uh, Alexis, how did he do? Yeah. One for three, Jefferson. Stay on the line, though. You got to stay on the line. You may get a book anyway. I'm going to say that. Uh, Thank you so much for calling. Thank you so much for for listening. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of International Orange? The Golden Gate Bridge, uh, as they were kind of, you know, building it, there was a primer that was put on the bridge before they were going to paint it. The plan had initially been to paint it, you know, gray, uh, a a pretty standard color of bridges, of bridges at the time. And uh, one of the designers for the bridge saw this this bright orange primer on on the bridge and was like, wow, that looks really nice against the green hills of of Marin and, of course, of of the Presidio on the other end and ultimately was able to sort of talk colleagues into, hey, let's actually keep this bridge this bright color. So they found a paint color that was really similar. It ended up being called International Orange. And that is the color that is on our bridge today and and really is what makes it so remarkable because, you know, aside from the color, you know, there's actually not that that's that remarkable about the Golden Gate Bridge from an engineering standpoint. I've often been told that the Bay Bridge is, from an engineering standpoint, a much more marvelous bridge. Uh, But that color, you know, you, you can't forget it. Let's play one more round of trivia. Uh, Nisha in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Yeah, hello. All right, Nisha, are you ready to play? Yes, I'm very excited to play. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take it away, Olivia. Let's All right, go. Nisha. Statistically, what is the hottest month of the year in San Francisco? Um, September. Oh, nailed it. You got nailed it. it. So All it right. is September. <laughs> Off to a strong start. Off Possibly strong... the only hot month of the year. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Question number two. What is the average speed of one of San Francisco's cable cars? And we have made this multiple choice. Is it A, 15.5 miles per hour? B, 22.5 miles per hour? C, 9.5 miles per hour? Or D, 5.5 miles per hour? Uh, 9.5. Wow. Yes, two for two, Nisha. Nisha, I'm very impressed. <laughs> All right, question three. The Rainbow Tunnel on Highway 101, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, was officially renamed to honor this comedic actor in 2015. Uh, Robin Williams. Oh, three for three, Nisha. Our first winner. <laughs> Our first winner. Excellent job, Nisha. Are you um, are you like a lifelong resident? Are you a trivia hound? What's uh, how are you so good at this? Uh, 
Well, no, I mean, I'm a Bay Area lifelong resident, but I guess I just happen to know random trivia. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can play on our trivia team anytime you want. Thank you uh, so much, Nisha, for for the call. Let's talk about, Olivia, another um, story that's in the book. This is actually right near my house, so I'm it, it cl- near and dear to me. The White Horse. Yeah, the White Horse Inn. It's probably the oldest gay and lesbian bar in the United States. And I say probably because there's a couple of contenders for this title. And the origins of a lot of these bars are pretty murky because mm-hmm. a lot of them started before, uh, you know, or during the Prohibition era. So were they open? Mm-hmm. Were they not open? tea, you know, we're not really sure. Um, And also because, you know, homosexuality was not legal uh, for a time in American history. So if these places were friendly to the queer community, it was not advertised in the mainstream. It was not something that may have been talked about or written down in newspapers or other primary source documents that we're looking at. But the White Horse does allege that they are the oldest continuously running gay and lesbian bar in the United States. Um, and it still remains a wonderful place today um, that you know people can kind of go and, and find a great community. I love one particular show there, the uh, Rebel Kings of Oakland. Mm-hmm. They're they're a drag king group. We actually had one of their performers, Vera, came and performed at our book launch here last Tuesday. And if you're looking for it now, it's not hard to spot because it's right there on Telegraph and there's a big rainbow sidewalk painted right outside yeah. so you can, you can find it. Um, let's talk about another, you know, this is kind of a kind of one of the areas that's of difficult history um, here in the Bay Area. And it's a, a place called Port Chicago. During World War II, the entire military was segregated, and that included the Navy. And black sailors were usually given one of two jobs. They were asked to cook for usually white servicemen, or they would be tasked with loading and unloading cargo. Um, locally, it was from ships. And a lot of times that cargo was ammunition, bombs, warheads, other very dangerous things to be handling. And to be doing this, they were given very little training, almost zero training, actually. And so this was happening out at Port Chicago, which was a munitions depot east of Martinez here in the Bay Area. And in July of 1944, there was a massive disaster. Two large explosions ripped through Port Chicago. They actually registered as a 3.4 on the Richter scale, which oh is what gosh. we use to yeah. measure um, you know, earthquakes at the time. And shaking was felt throughout the Bay Area. Now, 320 people were killed in these explosions, and 202 of them were black soldiers who had been, you know, loading this Mm -hmm. ammunition. What caused the explosions has never fully been determined because so much was destroyed. But, you know, it's it's believed that probably there was a loading mechanism that may have failed and Mm. dropped a bomb actually on a ship that was already loaded with with a bunch of explosives. Now, after this disaster, black sailors were told to clean up the mess. And that included, you know, the bodies of of their friends and comrades, Mm -hmm. while white officers were given time off to grieve. When the black soldiers were or sailors were asked to, you know, start working soon after at, at another nearby facility doing the same work in the same conditions without any kind of additional training, 50 of them refused. Um, mm-hmm. And they were ultimately put on a mutiny trial that attracted a lot of national and, and even international attention. And, you know, I'm going to skip over some details here, but it's all in the book. But ultimately, sort of all the attention that was on this group of people during this time helped to 
really just like push the ball forward in desegregating the entire military. We were talking like third grade. Marshall got involved. Yeah. Uh, you know, FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt got involved. All those things. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, a lot of those same black sailors also after the fact, were not really supported, right? They still had that. It's not like they the charges were expunged or they were exonerated, right? right. They still had to deal with that. Yeah, they spent lives. many years in military prison, um, and then you know for the rest of their lives were dealing with this mutiny charge on their records, which of course made employment really difficult. Um, and to this mm. day, uh, you know, I don't think that this country has like made amends um, or or you know done anything retroactively to expunge those records. Yeah. All right. Before we go back to trivia. Um, I do want to talk about an entirely different uh, thing in the spectrum of things that you cover, which is Rocky Road ice cream. Ooh, this is one of my favorite stories. Long story short, Rocky Road ice cream was definitely invented in Oakland in the 1920s. Um, you know, it was the Great Depression. At the time, ice cream came in three flavors. You had chocolate, you had vanilla, you had strawberry. It's hard to imagine now in our world of like, you know, matcha tea and coconut almond crunch or whatever it might be in your freezer that's what's in mine um but you know we kind of you know originally had these these three basic flavors and somebody in oakland i'll get to the who's in a second Mm -hmm. but somebody in oakland thought hey we've hit the depression it's the rocky road of life what if we put some stuff in the ice cream so they put in some nuts i love that you actually had to innovate that like someone had to be like you know we could put in ice cream some stuff some stuff we could put stuff in ice cream so put in some nuts put in some marshmallows voila you have rocky road it ends up being, you know, the sensation and really starting this whole genre of like putting stuff in ice cream that, again, feels so familiar to us now. Now, what is at the center of this debate is who that person was who decided to put the stuff in the ice cream. On one hand, uh, or one, one side of the argument is it was William Dreyer, founder of Dreyer's Grand Ice Cream, started in Oakland, of course, now in supermarkets across the country, sure. on the East Coast. It's Edie's. I don't know why, but <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um, and then on the other hand, it could have been this guy, Melvin Fenton, who you might recognize that last name because he is the grandson of the original owner of Fenton's Creamery. Historians aren't sure which story is right, but somebody came up with Rocky Road ice cream in Oakland, and it's delicious. Now it's everywhere yeah. and for all time. Yeah, it's amazing how many of the food stories in this book have something like that, where mm-hmm. it's like, well, this bakery and that bakery might have also invented fortune cookies at this time. My time might have invented this place and this place. Yeah. Do you just think that's like... Um, People that there's something in the air. I mean, it's it's true of things like electric lights and other kinds of like, you know, maybe more infrastructural innovations. Yeah, I think especially with food. I mean, almost all of our food stories, it feels like there's a little bit of controversy. It's a little murky. Mm -hmm. The origins, you know, there's a couple things happening happening simultaneously. I think when it comes to food, a lot of times, you know, there's kind of a bigger food trend movement happening. So it's possible that more than one people kind of, quote unquote, invent something around the same time because they're inspired by similar stuff. Um, And ultimately, I don't know how much it really matters who invents you know, Rocky Road ice cream or the Mai Tai. I'm just really thankful that I can enjoy both. Today. Yes. <laughs> um, by the way, Mai Tais invented at Trader Vic's now in Emeryville. Yeah. Um, let's take another trivia call. Kristen in Woodside. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. All right, Kristen. Do you think you're you think you're ready? I hope so. I've lived here my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, Olivia. You should be well suited. Here we go. She's the mastermind behind the film Always Be My Maybe, which was set in San Francisco, where she was born and raised. 
Who is oh, she? Oh, man. Had you asked me anything besides film trivia, I might have gotten <laughs> it, but I don't actually have a clue. That would be Ali Wong. Wong. Yes, Allie yes, Ali Wong. Wong. <sighs> but we'll keep going. We'll keep going. There's some others here I think you'll, I think you'll get. All right, I was number- pounding my steering wheel over International Orange. So uh, <laughs> was, so I wish I had that question. Sorry, go ahead. All right, next one. These islands sitting off the coast of San Francisco are sometimes referred to as the Devil's Teeth Island by mariners. Those would be the Farallon Islands. Yes, indeed, Farallon. Oh, engineer Danny Bringer. Coming bringing in with the, the bell. Uh, yeah, that's right. Was that, was that a cable car bell, too? Sounds like yes. He's it given was a yes. A cable car so, charming, charming. <laughs> the creativity oh, like on display. <laughs> All right. Question number three. In the South Bay, it takes thousands of gallons of bay water and about three years to produce one pound of this substance. Uh, salt at the Cargill Salt Flat. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Good job, Kristen. Thank you, guys. all don't just deal with sort of the human side of the Bay Area. You also deal with, you know, kind of our, our natural setting in these ways that, that can be really beautiful. And you, one of the pieces of the book is to talk about our redwoods. Yeah, our redwoods. I mean, what's not to love? Um, I learned some things, though, as we were putting the redwood story together for this book, uh, including there are two different kinds of redwoods in California. There's the Sierra Redwood which is up, you know, in the mountainous regions, in the Sierra, uh, as it's named. And then we have the coast redwood, which we find all along the Pacific here, sort of in northern California. The Sierra redwood actually is only in a couple of groves, like I think a dozen groves or so in the Sierra. And those are are definitely endangered by climate change, as are, unfortunately, our coast redwoods here on the coast. Uh, we're definitely seeing some shrinkage of the amount of, of you know, land that that is occupied by coast redwoods all over northern California. And some of the fun differences between the two Coast redwoods uh, nearby, they are known for their height. And actually, the tallest tree in the entire world is a coast redwood. It's up in Humboldt County. It has a name, Hyperion. It's 380 feet tall, which, Alexis, imagine a football field in length that, you know, it's taller than a football field is long, which just kind of breaks my brain to, mm-hmm. to even think about. Um, and then, of course, the, the Sierra Redwoods are, are really known for their just overall mass. They're, you know, the fat trees yes. <laughs> up in the mountains. And, and one other fun thing that I didn't know, redwoods at this point are, are mostly in California, a little bit in Oregon, but generally in this region of the world and nowhere else. However, at other times on this planet, other times, you know, with, with different climate, redwoods have had a much larger range. Oh, that's so interesting. Also, here's my fun fact about redwoods. There is a third type of redwood, oh, yeah. the Don redwood, only uh, native to central China, yes. I believe. However, if you'd like to see one, or actually a few of them, you can go to the um, Berkeley uh, Botanical Garden oh. um, there in Strawberry Canyon and take a look. They're really beautiful, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fun fact. Let's uh, do another trivia call. Uh, mm-hmm. Massimo in San Jose. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's, it's great to be on. All right, Massimo. Here we go. Question number one. Commonly seen in the Bay Area, it's one of the slowest creatures on Earth, moving at a maximum speed of six and a half inches per minute. Should I give him a hint? One hint. One hint. They're yellow. (laughs) Uh, 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 All right, I'll give it... 
They happen to be the mascot of a beloved, close to Bay Area University, that is UC Santa Cruz, the banana slug. Yes, <laughs> banana slug. Oh Very fun to spot in the wild, I think, and easy because they're bright yellow. I'm humble. <laughs> <laughs> All right, question two. Betsy, Bailey, Buttercup, and Bambi are a sampling of the names from this animal herd found within San Francisco city limits. Herd is the um, giveaway here. Herd is definitely the giveaway. Uh, are they bison in Golden Gate Park? Yeah, correct. 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 Fun yeah. fact, bison are different from buffalo. <laughs> they have different ranges uh, on this planet, and bison were once found in large, large numbers all yeah. across the West. Also a fun fact that I learned from the Bay Curious book, they're all Women. female. Yes. Yeah, female bison. Yeah. yeah. We once had some male bison in Golden Gate Park, and uh, we'll Apparently, just say- <laughs> they were. Wilding work out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. They would. They they escaped. They threatened some people. It was it was a bad time. So just just ladies now. Uh, okay, number three. The largest earthquakes to hit the Bay Area came in 1906 and 1989. I should say in in modern history. We don't know about the entire history of of this planet, uh, but they originated along which fault? San Andreas. Correct. Correct. How did he do? Two for three. Kind of, I thought, you know, missed the the banana slug, but you did great. Stay on the line. We will get you a book. Um, We've never played trivia on this show, Olivia, and I love it. Um, Thank you for joining us, Massimo. Sure. Thank you. We are here with Olivia Allen Price, host of KQED's Bay Curious, which if you don't know, is a podcast that investigates questions asked by local residents about things both profound and peculiar that make the Bay Area unique. We're celebrating the publication of the Bay Curious book, which is Bay Curious, exploring the hidden true stories of the San Francisco Bay Area. There are 49 stories in the book, as well as a variety of sidebars. You can learn about Mai Tais and Redwoods and all kinds of things. couple of uh, comments to read. Chris writes in to say, I just wanted to say how much I love Bay Curious and especially this segment. Being a second generation kid, I visited both sets of grandparents in Chinatown and the sunset nearly every weekend of my childhood. And learning so much about the Bay Area's quirks is not only interesting, but helps me understand my identity as a Bay Area native. That so is, nice. That is exactly what we want to hear. Right? That is That's exactly the feeling you want to leave people to do, with. So it, I'm so thankful to hear that. Thank um, you. One of the great stories in this book. Um, is about the architecture of Chinatown, which is sort of, you know, kind of like Rhode Island, neither a road nor an island. You know, it's like, this is not Chinese architecture, right? Um, Tell us the story about how it came to be what it is. I'd love to, yeah. So if you would have come to San Francisco's Chinatown before the 1906 earthquake, it would have looked a lot different from how it looks today. Everything was pretty modest, pretty functional, very well built, but not at all flashy, not particularly colorful, um, you know, pretty, pretty basic. And that was in part because the earliest inhabitants of Chinatown were Chinese merchants, carpenters, builders, masons, people who could build stuff, but they didn't have architects who were there to you know, design stuff and excite the eye and, and do all sorts of things like that. So the, the buildings were great, but they were very plain. Now, after the 1906 earthquake, of course, everything you know in, in many neighborhoods is, is destroyed, and that includes San Francisco's Chinatown. And the city was starting to work to rebuild 
their neighborhoods. And the Board of Supervisors had hatched a plan to actually displace the Chinese population away from Chinatown. That land had become valuable. It was really close to the center of the city. You know, they they wanted that for, for different things. They wanted to push, you know, Chinese people to a different part of the city, a further away part of the city. The Chinese leaders in in Chinatown at the time caught wind of this, and they were very, very smart because what they did was they acted, first off, very quickly to rebuild, Mm -hmm. to re-sign leases with their landlords, to, you know, Mm -hmm. get building on on property if they owned it, and, and go ahead and start rebuilding Chinatown as quickly as possible. And they did something ingenious, and that was, hey, let's try to appeal to this Western idea of what Chinese architecture is by creating sort of like a fantasy land in Chinatown. That's where you see a lot of this architecture today in Chinatown that isn't necessarily even a reflection of what you would find in China. Some of the ways that the, the buildings are designed, like they might use, you know, motifs that, that mm. are traditional mm-hmm. to China, but in a way that's like a little bit different. They painted everything, you know, these really vibrant colors and Westerners just ate it up. And they, they knew that by doing this, it was a way to play defense in mm. a way to keep their community, you know, rooted where it was. And it's it's been neat to see it work out so well. They're still there today. Yeah, obviously. I mean, the, the sources in that story in the book also have just such incredible things to say about the like really the specific knowledges that were deployed and how how well they seem to know the people around them um, so that that would actually work out. Um, I, my favorite quote about our Chinatown is that it's neither east nor west, but but, but decidedly San Francisco. Yeah, that's the so, line. Yeah. That's so good. Um, you know, one listener uh, writes in to note, just to note uh, that while there has been no exoneration yet for the Port Chicago sailors, it's not for lack of trying. Our East Bay yes. Congressman, Mark Desalnier, continues to introduce bills for exoneration, which unfortunately um, haven't gotten through both houses. So, yes, that is correct. People uh, are trying. Hopefully, yes. hopefully <laughs> something goes through. Um, we've got another person who'd like to play trivia. Dia in Concord, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. All right. Hi, Dia. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. All right. George Whitney was the manager of Playland, a beloved amusement park at Ocean Beach in the early 20th century. What other quintessential San Francisco treat did Whitney invent in 1928? Okay, that's been the ice cream sandwich. Oh! We'll um, give it to you. I, I think that's count. The it's that counts. That counts. it. Yes. The it's it ice cream sandwich. Yes. Wow. It's it. Yes. yes. Born from born from Playland out, out in Ocean Beach. Wow. This is one I, I I hope I hope you know. I, I'm convinced people will know this one, but uh, the producers here are not sure. <laughs> what Bay Area city has the motto "Climate Best by Government Test"? Could it be Alameda? Ooh, no, no, that would be Redwood City, uh, which, yeah, people on the peninsula, I think, would know. It's uh, it, it's plastered all over town. Do you know what this government <laughs> test was? <laughs> I do. Uh, Rachel Myro did a story for Bay Curious about this motto because it is it is plastered all over town. So people have asked, what is the government test? It's actually pretty shaky science, to be entirely <laughs> honest. Uh, I can't remember the, the, the era, but I want to say it was like the 1920s. There was a guy who was basically measuring the temperature in Redwood City every day and you know determined that it was one of the most ideal places on the planet. The federal government somehow caught wind of his service 
survey picked it up and and kind of carried it forward and somehow we ended up with this with this moto it's all in the story i yes. won't get into the details <laughs> but uh but that's that's a fun story of ours um all right D, here's your third question what comfy space-saving furniture invention was designed in a San Francisco studio apartment? Um, is it a futon? Very close, but the fundamentally bed. different. The Murphy the Mur- bed. Murphy bed. Murphy <laughs> bed. Ah, uh, you got a you got a tough set, D. I will I will tell you that. I feel like you got a tough set. Thank you so much for uh, for calling and playing though. Thank you so much. Olivia, I want to talk about another myth bust that you do in the book, kind of similar to the climate bust by government test, which is about Mount Diablo and how far you can Mm. see from it, right? This claim got rolling that it was, you could see further, more land than anywhere else aside from the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, even though it's only like 4,000 feet tall or 3,800. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you've been up to the top of Mount Diablo, you can kind of see how you could make uh, that claim. But yes, it was a widely circulated claim, actually still is in circulation to some degree today, that from the top of Mount Diablo, you can see more land on Earth than anywhere else on Earth. It's called a view shed is is what the, you know, scientific Uh term for for that is. Had the largest view shed uh, on the planet. You know, eventually someone did some math and uh, determined that no, in fact, uh, Mount Diablo does not have the largest view shed on Earth. I think it's Kilimanjaro, but I I would need to double check our story about that actually. <laughs> um, but what is pretty fun is that you can go to the top of Mount Diablo and see sometimes as far as like Half Dome in Yosemite. Um, it is still a spectacular view, if not the largest on Fair Earth. Fair enough. It is an amazing view. Totally worth doing, even if it's not that, you know, <laughs> world historical in that way. Um, a couple other, um, uh, well, fun comment here. Mike writes in to say, I recently found out that the average depth of San Francisco Bay is only 12 to 36 inches between Hayward and San Mateo to San Jose. That seems so shallow. Yeah. Does this mean one can walk in the bay there? Ooh, good question. I, I mean, I, muddily, yeah. grossly. <laughs> I mean, I will say we get a lot of questions about why there's not more ferry service around the southern part of the Bay Area, and that is why. It is just too shallow to run a ferry through there. Yeah. Um, let's get uh, another trivia caller. Let's get um, David in Fremont. Welcome. We'll play fast before the break. All right. What soda company was the first to be sold in cans? Shasta. Uh, Correct. Shasta, nailed well it. Well done. All right. They did it in 1953. Uh, number two, what bookstore in the Bay Area was home to the literary luminaries known as the Beats? Oh, I love this one. Uh, that's the City Lights. City Lights, there that's right. All right, let's see if you get three for three. <laughs> this Bay Area city is known as the garlic capital of the world. Thank you for giving me three easy questions. Uh, this would be Gilroy. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent work, David. You went three for three. Um, stay on the line, of course. Um, I um, I love that Gilroy is the garlic capital of the world. Oh, yeah. We we also are known for some other um, fruits and vegetables, though, too, right? There's like the Delta asparagus. Are there any other favorites that you have? Ooh, fruits and vegetables. Uh, or foods in general from the... Foods in general. I mean... I really come back a lot to our cocktails. I'm, mm. I'm a lover of cocktails. Um, so I love that the martini has roots here in the Bay Area. Another one that it's like, was it here? Was it here? We're not sure, but likely in the Bay Area. We talk about the Irish coffee, of course, and how that kind of made its way to 
America. Right. That was sort of like invented in Ireland, but we sort of popularized it. Popular. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. I had one this last weekend at the Buena Vista Cafe with my dad who was visiting and they are fantastic as ever. The Mai Tai right. is, of course, delicious. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I love talking about our cocktails. Yeah, I did not know that the martini was invented here. Yeah, it's it's my dad's go to to drink when I told him he was he was floored. Yes. Um, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about Bay Area language, Olivia. Mm. Um, how about the origins of Hella? I mean, this is, you know, used used widely now. Yeah. So Hella started among black youth in, in Oakland and then, of course, has been picked up over the years and appropriated and used by you know everyone. And today it's probably one of the biggest linguistic exports that we have yeah. out of California uh, is, is Hella. And that's one thing that we found as we were almost every time we look into language and slang, so much of it originates in, in black culture. And then, you know, yeah, gets picked mm-hmm. up or appropriated by by others. It's also it's like surprisingly old, though, right? I mean, I think the story indicates that you know it's in the 1970s, like when this when that particular word started to take off. Yeah, yeah, it, it's quite old. Uh, the the sources that we talked to first remember hearing it while they were playing Pop Warner football, <laughs> uh, which I, I find you know just super charming. Um, some punk bands were incorporating it into their songs early on, and there was actually for a while a debate about whether the the term was really hella or hell of. And a linguist actually did like a deep study on this word and determined that he thinks it has always been hella because the way that you would say something is hella good is different from you saying like it was a hell of a good doesn't make sense right um so yeah the the hell of a people kind of went by the wayside and and hella rose as as you know the the slang word of choice the other linguistic battle uh, that you document in the book is over whether to call san francisco frisco Absolutely. We get heat for this uh, routinely. We still get heat for this. And it's actually probably the only thing that we take a stance on in the book. For the most part, we're kind of just trying to deliver the facts. But we believe that Frisco should not be as frowned upon as as some people believe it is. The the history or the, you know, the word Frisco has a long history in, in San Francisco. It's been used, you know, really since the ports were strong here back, you know, mm-hmm. early 1900s. And it was, uh, you know, has been, has lived on again in, in various communities. It's been a strong word throughout time. Herb Kane with the San Francisco Chronicle kind of went on a tirade against Frisco. He kind of thought it was, you know, kind of gross sounding. It, it didn't live up to this image he had. And worse, he said it was for tourists, right? He said it was for tourists. He, it didn't live up to this image he had of San Francisco as a classy, you know, metropolitan, more mm-hmm. European style city. He thought Frisco kind of sounded trashy. And he wrote about it. And a lot of people listened. And that belief has kind of stuck around, even though Herb came himself, even, you know, in his later years, kind Recanted. of... Recanted. He did. He <laughs> he went back and said, you know, actually a lot of, he, I think he called them the old rubes on the the waterfront uh, we're using the word Frisco oh, so you know it's it's never left a lot of communities here in the Bay Area I think I, I would like to see a world in which people can kind of call the city yeah. what they would like um, get this William in Orinda has a trivia question I mean technically for us but it's really it's for you because you're oh. gonna be the one who gets oh it my all right William we're ready we're ready William there's a tree that's common in the Bay Area uh, one of its names is the name of a national tree in Europe. Ooh, national a national tree. tree in Europe. So uh, the what tree is a national, national tree. The national, 
the national tree of a European country. Ours is ours. The name is is um, that was brought to uh, that country from uh, brought here from that country because the trees are similar. Ooh, but it's so it's not a native tree, not a native tree, but a common yeah. tree. No, it's a native. It's native here. It was named after a similar tree. Oh, in this country. oh, oh. Okay, okay. All right. Okay. I I'm gonna go um, uh, mm. bay laurel. Ooh. That's a good one. <laughs> Honestly, Danny's Danny uh, Danny Bringer, the engineer, has definitely been waiting to use the wrong uh, button on somebody. I'm gonna guess manzanita. Nope. Oh. oh, what is it, William? What is it? Uh, it's our coast live oak, which the Spanish name is Encina. Oh. It's very similar. It's very similar to the Encina. It's got it's an evergreen with a curly prickly leaf in uh, Spain. <clears throat> Um, I'm not sure the exact species. I think it's um, Quercus ilex. They're both the Quercus. Uh, it's called also called holly oak or home oak. Uh, but the reason it's the national tree of Spain is that the pigs that make the Spanish pork eat its acorns. <laughs> oh, I love that. William, well, thank you um, so much. You stumped us. Yeah, both. you got us. Good job. Well done. Good All job. Right. Every, every time I see an NC, I think, oh, wow. And um, uh, the connection, I think people want to know. Yeah, yeah It would make me hungry for ham. Yes, thank you, William. We have been talking about the publication of the Bay Curious book. The full title is Bay Curious, Exploring the Hidden True Stories of the San Francisco Bay Area. Congratulations, Olivia. Thank you. I'm really thank happy you, for you. It's a beautiful book. Olivia Allen Price is the host of KQED's Bay Curious. She's joined us. If you don't know the podcast, it investigates the questions asked by local residents about things both profound and peculiar. We're going out to everyday people by Sly and the Family Stone. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Nina Kim. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that program, check out the KQED Forum podcast feed for lots of fascinating, relevant conversations about the Bay Area and beyond. I'm a regular listener, and Forum always leaves me feeling a little bit smarter. I was also recently on the podcast East Bay Yesterday, focusing on some of the East Bay stories in the book. You can find that over on the East Bay Yesterday podcast feed. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. Our show is produced by Amanda Font, Christopher Beal, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Big thanks to the KQED Forum team for this episode. We'll be back next week with a new story about giant trees. See you then. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. 
special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.